So this podcast is called God's Only Man. Um, it's split up into two parts. Uh, it's part one and part two. Um, in part one, I talk about this idea that I have for a science fiction film called God's Only Man, which is sort of um, a film that I was that I'm working on writing in the process of, of writing it right now. Um, it's a film that's in response to Taxi Driver by Martin Scorsese and, and Paul Schrader. Um, and so it's a science fiction film. Um, and I go into a lot of details about um, the story, the sci-fi setting, the um, philosophical implications of what I'm trying to do with the film, the theological implications, because there's a lot of that going on. Um, and in part one, we talk mostly about um, the philosophical, the theoretical and the um, story itself. And in part two, we'll talk about uh the, sci the more sci-fi elements and how those play into the film. So uh, this is God's Only Man, part one. So I'm going to talk about God's Only Man. All right. When you're ready, hit it. So I have this idea for a um, sci-fi film, right? It's, it's funny. The um, I was... I, I, Taxi Driver is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, I love Taxi Driver. The funny thing is that it's not until like the fifth or sixth time that I watched Taxi Driver that I realized that Travis Pickle's a racist piece of shit. Okay. And so I remember when I told, I told uh, Resistor this, right? And I said to her, hey, you know, Taxi Driver is my favorite movie. But it took me like five or six times before I realized he was a racist piece of shit. And she said to me, so what did that do for you with the movie? Like, did you, was it still your favorite movie? And I'm like, it's even more my favorite movie. Because it shows just how common and commonplace, you know, the sort of white male racist American thing is how, how pervasive it is right and so I, I think a lot of people miss that I think it's so subtle right um, that most people miss it but I do think that the alt-right and these neo-nazis uh, see that film now as a I don't know a rallying cry or a, a a declaration? Sort of like inspiration, right? It's inspiring to them, right? Here, Travis Bickle does something about it, right? One day a rain's going to come and it's going to wash these streets clean, blah, 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 right? I mean, like, and the funny thing is that, you know, Paul Schrader's, when he writes it, he's exercising some sort of demons, right? Scorsese tries to tone it down, right? From all the stories that I've heard, he's like, whoa, this is really over the top. We need to pull back on this. Um, and, you know, those guys 
I, I would imagine that those guys are, are com- the complete opposite of Travis Bickle in, in that sense, right? So they're like trying to show how fucked up he is. And it's strange because now people are looking at it and saying, oh, this is, this is the blueprint. You know, this is how we do things, right? This is how it can be done. And so I was like, wow, that's strange. I said, you know, I want to make a movie that's like the anti-taxi driver. So I started to think about it. And so I started to do this research, right, about taxi drivers. So taxi driver is sort of the beginning for Paul Schrader of his God's lonely man theory, right? But I didn't know it was God's lonely man. I thought it was God's only God's man. only man, right. Right? So I'm doing all this research. Like, okay, let, let me find people who have critically read or critically written about Schrader and his God's only man. So like, with God's lonely man, this series of... Um, films that he's or things that he's been um analyzing or, or or been preoccupied with for a good part of his work the films would be like taxi driver light sleeper um maybe affliction um uh american gigolo uh and definitely first reformed his last film which was fantastic yeah, fantastic you know i mean like i i saw it twice in the theaters uh, I was trying to get to see it a third time and I it, it just was gone like I know we're like right now is like around Oscar time yeah you could probably see it again no it's I, I, I mean not in the theaters but it's Oscar time right and it's nowhere near up for best picture but if if I had to if I could pick a best picture of all the films that I've seen this past year, hands down, it would be first reformed. It's it's just an amazing film. Anyway, so but if you would, when, and when I saw first reformed, that's when I started to get this idea. And because the funny thing is that I think that first reformed is actually it's like a bookend for Taxi Driver, right? So Taxi Driver starts off God's lonely man in. And Taxi Driver starts off as this, you know, uh, aggressive, um, twisted, racist guy. But the bookend to that that Schrader does in First Reformed is sort of the complete opposite of that, right? And it's almost like, like, like he was saying, we need to have something. We need to have. I need to make an, my own opposite of Taxi Driver, right? But when I saw it, I was like, "Man, I need to, I need to, I need to respond in some way to Taxi Driver," right? So I started doing all this research, thinking it was God's only man, and I'm doing, and I can't find anything. Like I can't find anything, right? Because it makes sense to me, God's only man, right? But now I'm thinking about his total output 
Over time. Over time. Right? On this particular... On Schrader, on this particular, you know, theme, right? And it's not. It's God's lonely man. And I keep searching, and then I trip over God's lonely man. And then when I do a search on God's lonely man, all this stuff comes up. And I'm like, you're an idiot. It's not God's only man. It's God. And then when I think about it like that, God's lonely man, then I get... Now, the theme itself even makes more sense because all of these men are essentially alone. They're isolated from everything and everyone, right? And that's, that's a big deal for them. So, but then this, this, this mistake that I make, which is God's only man winds up becoming my thing, right? So, I had this idea of doing a film called God's Only Men. And I thought about, at first I thought about just shooting it for now, like in present time. And then I said, no, it should be a sci-fi film. Like we should just set it into the future. Or the near Near future, future, right? Right. And it's not that near. I mean, right now I have it set for 2067, uh, 50 years out. Um, but, uh, the, so I came up with this idea of doing the same thing that Schrader did in Taxi Driver with where Robert De Niro is going to try and save a child prostitute, Jodie Foster's character from a bunch of pimps and essentially what we would call today sex trade, right? You know, child sex trafficking, right? Is what it really comes down to. Because she's like, what? In the, she's plays 12 in the film, right? Or something like that? Something like that. Yeah. Um, and then, so I started to think about this whole um, this whole situation with the border where Trump was taking children from their parents for people who were illegally crossing the border. And so, not only was he taking these children away, but he was not keeping track of them. And people were saying, well, they're going up for adoption or they're going here or they're going there and they're going all over the place. And I said, I immediately thought to myself, nah, this is, this is twisted. This is, I personally think that they're taking these kids away and they're uh, trafficking them. They're trafficking right. them. I, I wouldn't say all of them, but I would say what they can get away with. Whatever they think they can get away with, right? They're trafficking them. And so the funny I, then I then there was, you know, Resistor had sent me a article about a girl who manages to escape in Florida from ICE. Like, she's been separated from her family. She's like 13 or 14 years old, something like that. And she's on the run in Florida. And she runs into... She's, like, I guess they're transferring her from a bus or something. And she says, fuck it, I'm out. And she bounces. So, she runs and she runs into this mechanic's garage to hide. The mechanic... He calls the police. Right, I know this story. Right. So, but But he doesn't... But the first thing he does is he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what's wrong with this girl. Like, this girl's panicked. 
she's you know freaking out she's sitting there like you know please don't call the police and he doesn't know what to do so he calls his sister and he when he calls his sister the sister gets on the phone and says i'm going to find you an immigration lawyer stay where you are don't move we'll get you an immigration lawyer to get over there to deal with it right in the interim the mechanic starts to think about it and goes fuck it i'm going to call the cops he calls the cops and before the immigration lawyer can get to them they come they and cover her, the girl, right. right? They grab her and they toss her back in, right? So I thought, well, this is, this fits in my God's only man sort of story. Um, this fits my my trafficking thing, right? So what I wanted to do is have a have my lead character find two girls actually. Um, who have escaped and he gives them shelter, gives them sanctuary. Right. And I wanted to talk about some other things about the future. And so that's why I was kind of sending it into the future. I wanted to complicate things a little bit uh, by setting it into the future. And so th- those were some of, that's how the story happens. So when when our lead character comes across these two girls who are petrified and explain that they've been kidnapped and they fear their kidnappers, he takes on the role of, of protecting them. Um, at least for a little while. And what I mean by protecting them for a little while is because he protects them or gives them sanctuary or shelter. Uh, but because this thing is set in the future and more and more, we're living in a world in which people can easily be tracked. Uh, the kidnappers find them eventually. And he has to, to make a decision as to what he's going to do um, about that. And But I, I also didn't want these the, 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 the women who had been kidnapped to simply be passive. And so... Uh, that's why I say, to a certain degree, he 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 helps them. He helps to save them at first, but then they literally join with him because they know that a bunch of other girls are being trafficked as well. As well, so they're like, "Well, we're not going to just save ourselves. We're going to go and try and get them." And he says, "Okay, well, I'm going to go. I'll help you do that." So it's so they're not just you know passive like, "Oh, we need help. Come save us," kind of thing. They will go. They will. They will take him to where they think these girls are 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 at, and they'll go and try and get them out of the situation. And so, uh, that's that's basically how the story goes. So, but at the same time that all this is happening, I am fascinated with two of these um, talks that Slavoj Žižek, who is a Slovenian philosopher uh, and uh, Lacanian psychoanalyst. Psychoanalyst, right? yeah. Um, I always get the psychoanalyst and the psychotherapist confused. but um, And so I, I'm a big fan of Žižek. I don't agree with everything he says, but I do, I do like the way he presents his ideas. Um, I do like how he takes things to some sort of 
uh, logical conclusion. Like he and pushes- also the fact that he uses a lot of practical, you know, examples. Right. Every usually day, practical examples. So right. Usually the, with the film or with to. politics or with jokes. Right. Or, you know, whatever. Um, and so uh, there were these two. There's a podcast called The Collected Recordings of Slavoj Žižek. And all these are, they're not really a podcast. They're just like people like will get a recording. They'll send it to the people who are running this podcast. And the people who are running the podcast. They'll clean podcast it up and then put, put them up, up every once right? in a while. Right. So there are these two podcasts that I've been listening to over and over again. One is called Is God Dead? Where Žižek talks about the death of God theology. And another one is called Christian Atheism, in which he talks about the way in which you can... The only way to be truly be an atheist is to go through the Christian tradition and come out the other end an atheist, right? And he has a very valid... Uh, yeah, that's his whole thing. His whole thing is the apotheosis of the atheist is the Christian who who finally has renounced God. Right, but, um, but only... But the, not renounce God, but that like that God has actually renounced Himself, right? And so, if God, so the only way to be yeah, a true atheist, Christ, right. Christ as the instantiation of God, uh, or the manly instantiation of God, is abandoning Himself, right? Right. Uh, and His whole theory is that uh, that's the it's the only way that that we need to take that example. And use it to help us get out of the predicaments that we find in this modern world, right? And also, the there's that whole theme about you know common shared struggle, right? Right. That that's that's really that's what's replacing. Well, that's, so what happens is that's so, what's replacing God, right? So so Zizek says that when God dies on the cross, according to Hegel, he's also a Hegelian, right? Zizek is a, is a follower of, of Hegel. Uh, that what dies on the cross is not an earthly representative, but actually God himself. It's not... So when God dies, God dies. Right. And it's so, not God's avatar right. who's going to come back. It's not a son He's who's going to come and back. And it's there, there is no resurrection, right? The resurrection, according to Zizek, happens in the guise of the Holy Spirit, right? So the Holy Spirit is... This thing that the Holy Spirit is is is, is the break the, or the resurrection. I mean, not the resurrection, but the crucifixion is the break between the old God, where that was up in heaven that everybody could pray to and could help, and they were looking for His help and His guidance and all that other stuff. And what happens is, according to the death of God theology, not just Zizek, but the death of God theology, that God dies. That God completely dies, and what takes—not what takes his place, but what 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 remains—what remains or what yeah, changes in the aftermath of that is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the love between people who are struggling to make the world a better place, right? So, I want you to incorporate those ideas into this whole thing into God's Only Man this film that I'm, I'm working on right now um, 
I liked the idea of like Zizek's been talking about this for really a long time and I really agree with it it's funny because a lot of the things that I have thought and believed in my own life through my own travels and my own experiences I haven't been able to put into it to synthesize into a real right and so what he does he, he does right so like um, you know his whole thing is that what makes things universal is struggle if you're fighting for something, if you're fighting for the emancipation of yourself or others, or not, no, not yourself or others, but yourself and others, because the emancipation is completely tied together, you can't be free if somebody else isn't, then that's what, that's universal. If you have to define the universal, it's the universal in struggling against oppression. Right. So um, this is where in, in a lot of ways, this is where people could could bring like a lot of people are talking about intersectionality. Right. And that's what the universal is. Right. So it's where, you know, where poor whites, poor blacks, poor immigrants, right. poor people where they all struggling. sort of come to the crossroads. <laughs> right. And. They find out that they are universal, right? Because they're trying to do something about their situation. And I don't mean trying to do something by like, you know, just working. I mean like they're actively struggling to change the system, right? They're active, that's the whole thing. You have to actively, I mean, one of the things that that Zizek talks about too in this Death of God is that the, the Holy Spirit is a collective of people who are struggling, right, to make positive change. And so it's not just it's it's not just a a, a a collective of people who are struggling. It's a collective of people who are engaged. You have to be engaged. You you can't simply be like I'm struggling just by making you know. Uh, trying to keep a roof over my head. It has to be more than that. It has to be more than that, right? Even if keeping a roof over your head... It's part of it, right? It's part of it. You can be subsistence farming, but protesting when you're not subsistence farming. Right. Right? Like, whatever that is. Right. Or creating a co-op with other farmers to figure out... How you can all... Right. To create a cartel so that you can get a better price... On whatever it is that you're farming, right? Yeah, this is collective action, right? And so um, that was one of the things that guided me, so that when 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 our lead character comes across these girls who need help, he helps them, right? And then they say, "Look, we've got to get these other girls out," right? It's like they're caught; they become universal. When they decide to go get the other girls. Like, we can't, in any good conscience, just leave those girls behind. That's when they become universal. That's when, and, 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 and when our lead character joins them in that struggle, he becomes universal. And then when others join in that struggle, which I haven't completely worked everything out, but I would love to have three or four or five people Five or six people, actually, is right now is my number in my head, 
who are actually going up against this whole child trafficking thing. And so what I'm also trying to bring into certain things is that um, people are outraged by this idea, and rightfully so, that, you know, Trump is taking children from their parents at the border. But this has been an ongoing problem for a lot of people of color. You know, young women, young black women who disappear and are never heard from again. There's a, a, a high number of women of color who just... Yeah, they disappear. They're gone. Child protective services, all those things like foster care system. They're just gone. They just disappear. Uh, Native American women, indigenous women, violence than everyone. But they disappear at at an alarming rate. Look at the women. There's there's that whole thing where the the missing women of of Juarez, thousands of women go missing, you know? And so I wanted to bring that into this story as well. So, but again, I don't want these characters to seem like, like everybody needs help at some point, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that you're helpless, you know? Um, so that's what, that's what I'm getting at with, with, with this collective, trying to create five or six people who are willing to, to risk everything to do this. You know, and so the, so here's the crazy idea, right? So the crazy idea is that for about I don't know, about two months now, two three months now, I've been taking, listening to Zizek's Christian atheism talk and his God is dead talk, and trying to find what I want what trying to trying to distill what he's trying to say um because i have this crazy fucked up idea of having Zizek narrate the theoretical aspects of the film while the film is happening and what i'd like to do is so what I, my plan was, and I think it's working out well, I think I have a, I've, I've t- so I've taken, I took the Christian Atheism podcast, cut it up, distilled it. I think it's like an hour and 45 minutes or something. Cut it up and distilled it into like a 10 minute so chunk. I took the God is dead, and the main, the main, his main sort of um, talk on God is dead. Although that's like another, that's also another sort of hour and change, maybe an hour and a half or something like that. But his his talk on it is only half an hour. And then there's a question and answer, and he debates people afterwards for the next hour or so. Um, but I took the God is dead, is God dead? And distilled that into 13 minutes. So the two of these pieces t- together are 23 minutes. And so my hope is that I would take those 23 minutes and play them in the film. And then as a sort of an audio commentary. To the action on the screen. To the action on the screen. So in other words, so like in most films... You watch the whole film, and at the end of it, 
you say, okay, the filmmaker must have been trying to say X, Y, or Z, right? Like you get to the end and you go, okay, the filmmaker was trying to say this or that. And you can debate that and figure it out. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying, I'm going to let you know exactly what I want to say, exactly what I'm trying to say. Zizek is going to say exactly what I want to say in those 23 minutes worth of audio commentary that get laid over on top of the film and that are contrasted or um, supplementing the action. Right. The action it should be directly it. right. It, or it should. They're related. They're related. They're playing off of each other. Yeah, well, I was asking you this before. It's like, did you want this to be two super long takes? Because I could just imagine that. I don't think I've ever seen like a in in the middle of a film like a thirteen minute take, like one really really long take. Well, the what you call? I think there's um. There's an 11-minute take in one-shot take in Children of Men. Um, where she's walking? or they, when, they, when, when, she, when, they, when they run into the building. Yeah, yeah. And the, the baby starts crying. And everybody's, what? Oh, my God, it's a baby. You know? Yeah. And the war literally That was comes like, I got chills. I, I was yeah. like, that was, that was a very yeah. I mean, there are quite There are quite a few um, long takes in that film. Throughout, I don't see yeah, it as but a there, long take. The baby, the baby crying is that's like the only thing you hear, right? Right. It's like there's guns, there's war, right. there's all this action, and then dead silence. Yeah. For the rest of that take and the crying of the baby. Right. And then so, when the but when the crying of the baby gets out of earshot from the battle, right? The battle resumes. It's amazing, right? Yeah. Like I, it's a very effective device, right? But this is not. This is almost the opposite of that, right? Like what you're saying is there might be, there might not even be silence in the foreground, in the action. Right. Right. Like, are we going to hear anything there? I don't think you haven't decided that yet. No, right? I haven't. I, but the thing, so now the thing, so, so the, the point that I've gotten to right now is I've cut this thing down to 23 minutes. And I think 23 minutes, maybe it's a little long, but it says what I want it to say. So like when the, as soon as the film opens. Like, when the logos are up, when the production logos are up, Zizek's voice will start coming on and start explaining something. Right, and you'll see... Right, and people will be like, what the fuck is going on, you know? That's my hope. You know, because, you know, I think that we're coming to a point in time in, in storytelling and in filmmaking where people are really used to how much they're used to the storytelling mode, right? Like we live in a cinematic era. We live in a film era, right? So, um, you know, in the beginning of cinema, the whole thing was like, let's just, like the first movies were like trees just moving, right? They were, they were just like shooting a tree moving. Right, like the big deal. Remember, the big deal was the train. They're, right, they're shooting it's a coming train. towards, it's coming you, towards people you. Trying people trying to move out of the way. Literally trying to get out of the way because they think a train is coming at them. Right? I mean, right. this is really difficult for us to understand because we've literally grown up around images, like from the time we were born. We but don't even know what now. Now it's to the point where 
you can simulate any any image. Right. Simulate any vantage. Put a camera anywhere. But and whether but, that's but we real from, or generated by a computer, yeah, but you what accept we, but it. We went, what we went from just being able to photograph, you know, use moving pictures to record the world to telling a story. And and what happened? When people didn't when the when the technology was first forming itself, right? Essentially, cinema was nothing but a, a stage play, right? Because that's how we knew right. that there was, was no, a language. There was no language of film. There was yet. no language yet, right? And so you had these stage plays that were just literally the camera was stuck. It couldn't move and all that. And then what happens is a few years later, the camera's able to move. The technology just keeps right. it now advancing. Now you can have a tracking shot. Now you got tracking shots. Now you've got, now you've got you know, Buster Keaton on a train. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like now it's a big deal, and the the language evolves. Then you have editing punches, right? Fades, you know? wipes, all types of things. You get Eisenstein, yeah. who's cutting between. You know, you look at the Odessa steps sequence in October. Right. You know, now we're we're saying something, right? It's like you know, uh, somebody once said. Uh, I'm reading a book right now. Uh, a guy named I think his name is Nico Baumbeck. Um, it's called. Uh, Cinema philosophy and politics, and he said that the when, or his, in his introduction, he talks about the idea that the moment that you're editing, that you edit one image against another image, you enter the world of philosophy. You're either comparing and contrasting one image over the next, you know, butted up against the next, and that's when philosophy comes in. You know, the philosophy of cinema, and so. I think that people have become really, really aware of how stories are told and because of that, it allows, it allows those who are willing to take the risk to find new ways to tell the same story, right? Like you can, you can create a new language, right? We need to create a new language. Right, so it's like um, the, the 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 way that films are made now are based on the idea that people understand the language of cinema. Right, like if you showed a film, well, we have we have certain expectations, I think. Right, right? but we're, we we grew up with those expectations. Yeah, you, they're learned. Right, you know, I mean, you know. Like, so people say to me all the time, sometimes I get people go, oh, you're in the film business? How do you make a film? I don't, I could never know how to make a film. And I go, no, I bet you do know how to make a film. I bet people have a, people have a better understanding of how to make a film than they under, than they realize. If they had to make a film, they would start moving the camera in certain ways that would just make sense. I don't know if I believe that. No, I think I'm. I'm saying to you, look. I think people, if you're somebody who can tell a story, that's true. No, but people do that now, right? People do it now on YouTube, just like prank videos, right? Prank videos. People understand the language of cinema, right? If you're building up to something, right, and you're going, you're cutting. Oh, this person's walking down the street, and this person's hiding, and that person's walking down the street, and this person's running out to jump and scare them. Whatever you're using cinema. You have you you don't have to go to film school or read a book on how to build that because you've seen it. 
and you know how to recreate it. Right. You know, if you're having, a, if you're editing a conversation between two people, right? Whether or not you know that the 180 degree, 180 degree rule or not, you're applying it. You know, uh, this is some of the, this is, you know, something that I'm always fascinated to by someone else who always put certain things that I've been thinking about or that I've been living or experiencing into hardcore terms that can be easily explained. And that's, um, uh, I always get his name confused. Uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb, right? So is that it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that he said was, the anti-fragile guy, right? The anti-fragile guy, right? He wrote a book called Anti-Fragile. He wrote a book called The Black Swan, The Better Prostitious. I don't know how you say that name. Prost, prost, I don't know. It's some Greek thing. It's one of the things you only read, but you never say out loud. Um, he's got a bunch of books. Check him out. Anti-Fragile is a fantastic book. But in Anti-Fragile, he talks about something in which when we learn things, we learn things from a theoretical standpoint and not from a practicing standpoint, right? Not realizing. And so what happens is people like to talk about the theory of things as if the theory came first and then came the practice. Not realizing that all theory comes from practice, right? So if you want to know anything, right, you've got to figure it out in the real world before you can come up with a theory of how it works, right? So it's like, you know, people, when you learn in school, when you learn about gravity, you go, oh, well, there's the theory of gravity and, you know, uh, th th things have, th gravity pulls things down, right? Okay, yeah, but, you know, how do you figure that out? You know, one day Newton's supposedly sitting there, he's looking at an apple tree, the apple falls from the tree, and he goes, something's going on here. But he doesn't have the theory first and then the action. You have the action and then the right. theory. You make, he makes an observation, then he makes a series of observations, and a repeated series of observations let him make a generalization. Right. Right? And so, so everything that we know has, is based on somebody seeing something. They're seeing something or they're doing something and they're making it work. And then afterwards, people are telling us how it works. Right. But when they tell us how it works, they usually tell us, like, this is how things work. And you get the idea, the thrust behind the, what they're telling you always seems like somebody's thought this up before they actually did it. It's 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 the actual reverse. Yeah. The thought didn't come before. Right. The thought. The observation. No, you have to sit down and you have to go, I've got this problem. I've got this situation and I've got to figure it out. Or I've made these observations and I think they mean something. Right. Right. Like it, you may not have a direct problem or in the course right. of solving a right. problem, you may have observed something that you think is interesting and you right. think, well, why don't I codify that? Right. So, but when you're taught that in school, the thrust is always on, on theory as opposed to practice. Right. Right. It's always on, it's always on what we came up with in the end. Never. 
And it's really bizarre because the whole idea of going to school, right? The whole idea of learning, right? Is not so much to learn, but to learn how to think, right? So that you can take, you, so you get tons and tons of examples of people observing the world or trying to solve some sort of a problem, coming to some sort of conclusion and drawing a solution from it, right? And in school, the, the focus is always on the theory and the solution, but never how do you come about that? You know, like, how do you take that theory and that solution, the way that somebody came to that theory and solution, and apply, and apply it? it to other situations that you have to deal with in the world? Yeah, I think that it depends on what you're going to school for, because there are... There's applied science, right? Right, like, but I'm, that, that's different. But if you, but that's a different thing. So now, what you're trying to do is, you know, when you're talking about the sciences, right? You're talking about something in which that's the only. That's the only. I mean, there's no other way to teach science. There's no other way to be a scientist in that way. You have to know how people came to the conclusion, right? But what I'm saying to you is, in regular school, when you're in school and you're there, right? There's never. It's always about learning. It's always about learning the end outcome, and okay. never about let's, how we come let, to that. Yeah, like, let's outcome. let's limit that to history, like especially th- things like history, where there's a single narrative presented, right, and not multiple narratives, and no analysis of a competing right. narrative, right. When you went to school in primary school, at least, you're you're told. And the pilgrims came here, right. and they sat down with the Indians, right, right. and we had Thanksgiving. But Native Americans don't give you... They don't get the chance to say, no, 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 that's not how it happened, right. right? Like, it happened differently from that. Right. So you get a single perspective. Right. But and th- I think that's more what you're saying, yeah, right? Yeah, but I also think it happens even in math and even in science when you're in school, when you're not, when you're not going to be a mathematician, when you're not going to be a scientist. And I think what happens is, okay, uh, this is Pythagorean's theorem, and this is how the theory, this is how you solve for Pythagorean's theorem, right? right? And, and, and the thing is that you're no like... One, no one tells you if you want to get into film, you could use Pythagoras' theorem for rigging. Right. right. Like there's a practical application right. to these so things, the thing but is nobody... Like, so no, I'm, what, what would make me more, as a kid, what would interested? make me more interested in Pythagorean's theorem is Pythagorean had a problem. And he couldn't figure out how to solve this problem. And so then he comes up with a theory, right? And then you go, oh, that's, that's kind of, that, I, now I'm interested. Now I'm interested. I think it's just like they, they, they lay down, you know, the end result as if through osmosis, these people have just come up with this idea and dropped it on your lap. The, the funny thing is that like, when you're a kid and you learn about gravity, they do tell you the story about the apple, the apple falling from the tree. And that's like, and, and the reason why we remember the apple falling from the tree is because they told us that the apple fell from the tree and homeboy was saying, they're going, yeah, something's going on. There's a law of gravity. This is physics, right? So now, boom, that's why we all remember that story, right? But you give me some, some more other physics law. I, I don't, I don't I can't even think of any right now. Right? When you were a kid. 
But to get back to the film. Yeah, there's right? certain thermodynamic laws that you can't break. Right. But, right? The, but you, you know, don't, the whole reason that speed of light is but you don't the get fastest that. you could possibly but you don't, you go. You don't get that in school. You don't get that in school. You don't get the story behind how these things come about. Because I think that would be important. I think you just get, this is how it is, and that's all there is to it, and there's a test on Friday. And that's the problem. That's the problem. Yeah, that's a domain-specific problem. Yeah. There, there are certain places where you are presented with why, because you need to know why. Right. And especially in the applied sciences, that has to happen. Yeah, but I'm like talking about general school. if you're going to do research school. there... General, general school. I'm not talking about okay. being an engineer. I'm not talking about being a scientist. I'm not talking about something in which people have a vested interest in understanding where, where they're taking whatever they're studying and they have to apply it, it right. to a real world situation you know what i mean when you're in geometry class in yeah, high school you're not solving for you're a like, real world problem. you know just remember what pythagoras theorem is because it's on the test on friday and you're like right right so all that to say that people have a better understanding of how stories are told right and how films are made, more so from watching them constantly. I mean, people, there are screens everywhere. Television, mobile phones, film theaters. You know, it's just, it's pervasive, right? Like everywhere you go, uh, even, even outside of that, in your social media, there's constantly videos and stories being told. Right? Look, you're, you're the one, you remember you told me you can't stand the hands thing. The hands. Right? Oh, the hands God. on YouTube, right? Why do you think people do that? See, here's the funny part. People respond to it. Like, so there's the whole thing. People have studied this, and if you have a video that has no sound, if you look like you're more animated, and you're animated in a particular way, there's a certain set of people but who click on ads. Right, but before, but before that study was done. Before that study was done, plenty of people were doing it. Plenty already. of people were seeing right. it and doing it, right. knowing and that it works innately, right? Right, without having somebody say, "Oh, we did a we did a white paper on it," and here's the YouTube white paper that if you want more engagement with your YouTube video, you need to move your hands a lot, and you need to do this, and you need to be extra expressive, right? And you need to use jump cuts and this. None of that, right? You look at. Media, everybody has the tools to do these things, right? So the point is that now people understand the language more than ever. Right. We've taken the time to establish a norm, and everybody understands, well, this is how you do this. Right. Right. You want to get 100,000 views? You have to have these colors. You have to wear these clothes. Yeah, but that was... speak but, this but, way. But That's that was, a norm now. Right. But now, but what I'm saying to you is this is a perfect example so somebody wrote that down, right? Somebody wrote that down because it was based on an observation that they were seeing, right? They're looking at certain people, speaking a certain way, wearing certain things, doing certain things, and they're going, you know, these videos get more engagement, right? Engagement they just do. than these others. And they so they write, money, they write that down. What I'm saying is that people knew that. There were people doing that without somebody telling them, without having, without the theory ever being placed. Right. Like, oh, you need to move your hands like this, you need to wear these colors, you need to talk like this, you need to be very animated. But without doing, without anybody putting that down and putting that out there, that was already happening. Yeah, and the way that they figured out is engaging with their audience. 
Like they had X right. number of people it's, viewing, it's, right? And they're looking at, well, how are people reacting to right. what I just did? Right? Can I change up what I'm doing? What happens when I change it up? Right? Oh shit! I lost fifteen hundred viewers today. Right? We're back to the orange shirt tomorrow. Right? Right? That's that's how it goes. So because people are hyper aware of how films are made, how things are put together innately, right? Based on the amount of what we watch, um, I think it's time to push the elements of how a story is told, right? So if you've seen, if you watch a film, normally when you watch a film, you watch the whole film and you get to the end and you go, I'm wondering what the filmmaker here was trying to say. And, ah, that was interesting. You know, what it was, what were, what were the themes and so on and so forth. And it's not until you get to the end that you can figure all that out, right? Okay, that's the that's the way that we've been making films for a really long time. That's the way we've been doing a lot of things for a really long time, right? Plays, films, television, you name it. So what I'm trying to do with this film is put the theme up front. I think and you're then, trying to do more than that. Well, yeah. I, I think you're actually trying to break with convention a bit. So, like, you're not afraid... To tell. Whereas most people are like, show, don't tell. Right? Like, they would want what what you're having Zizek say to somehow magically come out of a character's mouth. Right. Like, that's another thing that sometimes does irritate me about the way that certain scripts are written. The director has a point, or the writer has a point, and they'll have this convoluted dialogue come out of people's mouth it's like nobody speaks like this like Mm -hmm. this this just doesn't make any sense why would you do this and you're like let's just cut the bullshit right let's just play this audio because there's no fucking way right i'm gonna get these characters to have a conversation about the crucifixion and the death of god right right like you you'd have to have University students being spoken to by a professor right. for or this you, to be, or people would, or two characters having a debate, right? But but then but then who's going to have that debate? Yeah, but but even but here's the thing. Here's the thing that I'm. I mean, unless the film was about two guys podcasting and they right. were talking about the death of God. <laughs> but the thing is that even that, even the so what what I'm saying to you is that if I show you right, if I show you. So it's, imagine a commentary. You watch a film, right? You let's say you watch your favorite movie, and right afterwards you watch the commentary on the movie, right? And now the commentary is sort of enriching the whole experience, right? It's a different text. It's a separate movie, right? The movie with the commentary is another movie, right? That's I don't consider that the same thing. Oh no, it's totally different, right? But then what happens is, so you watch. Let's say you watch the same film three times. You watch it without the. You watch it normally. Then you watch it with the commentary, and then you watch it after you've seen the commentary, right? You have a whole different understanding That's of the film. three different texts. Right, but you have a whole, but the third, but the, but the first text and the third text, right? They're are, different. Are, they're not the same. They're the same experience, but you're getting something completely out of, something right. completely different out of each of those experiences. You're sitting down and you're watching the same exact film. But with a different and now you have context, set. right? Right. You have the a view of the artist's intention, right? So what I'm saying is, I don't want to put a. Um, imagine a, a a 
imagine a that idea <coughs> of a commentary incorporated into incorporated the film. into the film. But even if you, but let's just say that you had two characters, right, that were just talking about the death of God and saying the same things. If I took Zizek's talk, created dialogue around it, and had two characters talk about it, right, it still wouldn't be as effective as what I think I'm going to attempt to do, which is you're still trapped in this theoretical thing, right, where people go, gee, these, these ideas Why are complicated. Why are they saying these things? They've no, got to... They've got to think about it. They're, no, they're talking about these things, right? And they kind of sound like they could be true, right? But I, I need a real-world example of how this plays out. I don't even know if you need that. I, I think for me, you might. But let's let's put it this way. Two characters are having a, a high-level discussion about the death of God. Right. If one of these ta- characters is a taxi driver... And one of these is your sex-trafficked kids that were stolen at the border. How probable is this conversation in the context of what might be going on in your film? I mean, it's not probable. It wouldn't work. It's not. Doesn't work. That's that's the point. Like right, I, but, I don't think but, it would work. Right. But but I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying to you is that if you just listen to Zizek, right? So the reason that I like listening to Zizek is that he says. Um, you know, uh, he'll give you a theoretical basis, right? Like, here's a theoretical basis of what it is that I'm trying to say. Punctuate that with a joke. And then tell you a joke. Or an anecdote. Right? And then you go, oh, that's how that theoretical thing works works in the real world. So what I'm saying to you is, I have the theoretical where Zizek is giving you the commentary. And then I'm contrasting that or complementing that with images within a story right. that are showing you how the theoretical becomes praxis. At, when, I, when I'm looking at your subject here, I'm looking at the whole taxi driver, sex trafficking thing. Another one of his overarching, overarching themes was more about heaven and hell are right here. Right. They're not in another life after your death. Right? The true atheist... Is living in heaven, is living in hell, maybe living in limbo. He's inhabiting those places now. Right here. Right? That's not divorced from his reality. They're real places. Right? So that's what we're seeing there. Right. There is no God. There is nobody you're praying to who's going to come down and save you. It's your fellow man. You? And struggling. But that's that's gonna say now we're getting to the theme, right? So what so what Zizek is talking about is and what other theologians have spoken about is that God becomes man so that he can become God. God cannot be fully God until he becomes man, right? And God is not you're you're not the one that gets to ask God for help. God's the one who asks you for help. In order for you to, in order for the kingdom of heaven to come to pass on this earth, it's your job to make that happen. Right. Here you have to do something. Now. You got to be engaged. When you, so when you see, when you see something fucked up happening, you got to go out there and do something And change about it. it, right. 
So, and, and as Zizek says in, in, the, in one of the podcasts, I can't remember which one, I think it's, I think it's Christian atheism. God doesn't, we don't, we don't put our trust in God. God put his trust in us. He said, you know what? I'm, I, I know that I did the right thing and I'm going to trust my creation to do the right thing. Right? And so uh, the, this also sort of jibes with me. Yeah, there's, there's no predetermination, right? Everybody has agency and everybody has to use that right. to basically make things happen. Well, according to, according to Zizek, according to the Protestant thing is there is predetermination, but you don't know what that is. And the only way that you can, the only way, and the idea that you don't know what it is, is what pushes you to do the right thing. So there is predetermination, but you don't know what that predetermination is. And so the only way for you to find out what that predetermination is, is to, is to ask yourself, what is that predetermination? What is it that I'm supposed to do? And if you do the right thing, Right then it comes out like this was the only thing that you were able to do. There's no other, there was no, there never was another choice. There never was another choice, right? And so, what I'm trying to do is, you have the theoretical, and at the same time that you have the theoretical, you have the practical, you have the praxis. How does this work out in the real world? This is all great in academic standards. You know, we can talk about epistemology and we can talk about ontology and we can talk about theology, but how does that work in to the real world? That how does that work into the real world? So, that's the that and and again, right? So, you're saying you're saying that the responsibility is on us right to fulfill the mission right so god says i trust you to do the right thing that's why i'm calling it god's only man and so we have a lead character right but that lead character is not necessarily so the, the, that the, the i want the the title of the film to apply initially to the lead character and then spread out from there so in other words the moment that he sees these girls that are in trouble and they, they need help, he becomes... As an individual, he has to make a choice. He becomes God's only man. But then, yeah, the point is, later on, everybody's got to make their own individual choice. And together, and those you, things kind of synthesized choice, into a bunch of choices. Right, that, but you make that choice, right? Thinking, right, that if I don't make this choice, if I don't do what needs to be... If I don't do the right thing, what needs to be done, then it won't get done. And that has to be an individual choice. What I'm trying to push here is that's an individual choice that happens collectively. In other okay. words, every Everybody's single character making, similar is making that similar choice choices. and they're going, but I'm going to work with these people. Right. Right. I can't, I need to do something about this, but I can't do it alone. So I'm going to work with these other folks to make this thing happen. And I think that's a, an, a really important message for today. You know, especially in, a, in, in the day and age in which we're living. We're living in this digital age. We're living in this global economic age in which, you know, a butterfly flaps its wings on one side of the earth and a fucking hurricane comes up on the other side. 
Yeah. You know, I mean, so even that we're also we're also very isolated. I mean, you have to look at some of the things we're able to do. Like where I'm in Jersey City, I don't have to see another person, man. I don't have to go to a shopping. Right. I got what you're saying. I, yeah. I don't have to go to the market to buy my right. my eggs or my milk. Yeah, my razor blades. Right. I don't ever have to see another person's face. Right. Like those choices that I make, you can have the illusion. That you are it's literally you. separated right. from the rest of the right. world. It's right. just you. Right. Yeah. But but if that were to all fall apart, you'd realize really quickly. It's not how connected. Right. Exactly. How connected you really are to the this whole, whole world. farm to table thing. Right. Yeah. That shit is built on an architecture of suffering, man. Yeah. You know. Um, so that's what I'm trying to get at with the film. That each of these characters is God's only man, and that the only way that they can make the only way they can bring heaven on earth is by working together. And it's a tragedy. I see the film ending as a tragedy. At this moment right now, it's a complete and utter tragedy. It's the, it's in, a, in a really strange way, it's the only way in which... It's the only way in which it can end honestly. To go into a situation knowing, wanting it, wanting to make it better with the idea to make it better and knowing that it's going to end tragically is the only attitude to have. Not even that. Anti-Travis Bickle can't solve the sex trade. The sex trade, like that's not going away, right? He can help these people. He's doing his part, but there's massive suffering elsewhere. Right, so he's a drop in the bucket, ultimately. Right, you know, and and so, um, to have it end in an uplifting manner, and I, and I really, you know, I think that the tragedy does it is an uplifting ending, you know, in a really bizarre, paradoxical way, you know, the fact that as I have it right now. The character, at least the, the lead character, is going to die. If you're talking about the invert, if you're inverting Taxi Driver, the in Taxi Driver, you have this madman who um, becomes a he, hero. He want, who wants to die, doesn't die, lives on, and becomes a hero. Right. So if you're doing the inversion of that, then my character has to want to live. He doesn't want to be a hero. Doesn't want to be a hero. Die and dies. You know? And dies, but not only does he die, but I think that he dies not as a hero, but as labeled as some sort of a terrorist. You know? Along with the rest of these people who are trying to change the right. world. In the world at large, right? he dies a villain. But in the eyes of the girls he saved... right. Right, he be, he he is, you know, he is the hero, right? So an anti-hero, right? In that sense, right? An anti-hero, but the only, but isn't it, you know, in a world in which we're living, in which everything is upside down, isn't the only way to be a hero is to be an anti-hero? Yeah, isn't the there's only also way to, a matter of perspective, right? right. So there's that, but, uh, but I don't think you have that. There's no duality of perspective 
in Taxi Driver. It's only kind of in retrospection. Oh, it's, oh, it's locked. You're locked into yeah, his perspective. It, it's, in ret- it's in retrospect. You're looking at it afterwards after you've watched it a few times. That's when you realize this guy's totally fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's insane. But that's, you, you know, here's the funny part. So, like, because, because you're locked into his perspective and you see everything the way he sees it, you don't see right away that he's this racist piece of shit. That's the, the that's the amazing thing about what Scorsese and Schrader and De Niro have done is that it's like, okay, we need to seal off the rest of the world so that people see things only as this character. And it's it's not until you step outside that you go, wait a second. And that and the beauty part, the beautiful part about this is that at the end they do step outside. Like he steps outside. You step you step outside the character, but you step outside of it almost like within Travis Bickle. Because Travis is reading at the end, Travis is reading, you know, the letter from the from the parents thanking him, right? Where now we're seeing what the other what the rest of the, how the rest of the world has seen this Sees story him. and framed this right. story and understood him to be some sort of a hero but we all know whoa even at that point you're like wow wait this twisted motherfucker like if only you knew right you have no clue like if you could see what i just saw right. you would you be like feel this no. way and so the thing for me is that our characters have to have that at least our lead character has to feel has it has to be completely inverted he has to not want to die. I mean, Travis wants to die. It's a suicide yeah, this mission. This character has to inhabit a different space. Mentally, physically, and the way that he moves about the world. Right. Right. But the other thing too is that whereas Travis, when Travis goes after so in, you have to take I'm take, trying take it from the beginning, dude. Like you already see that he's a smart mouth and he's super kind. Like the first time he goes into that uh, taxi station. When they have that interview and he's he's like, are you going to break my shoes? You're going right. to be a problem? The whole thing. You already see. He's a problem. Right. Yeah. But the thing is, too, is that because he's the everyman, right? And because you're locked into his point of view, it's, you, you understand. Like, if you're watching that film, you're not from the point of view of the guy who's hiring him. You're like, this guy needs a job. Right, you're thinking of it. You're, you're identifying. With, with you're him. identifying with him. I need a job. Don't bust right. my balls. I'm just here to drive. You know what I mean? I just want to drive. All right. That's how you see it. You know. Um, oh, that's how it's presented. Yeah, but you see it that way. It's right. presented that way, and you see it that way. It's not until you come. It's not until you decide to step yeah, like, outside of his perspective like completely. Third viewing right? that you really are like. You're like, wow. wait a second. You know, I don't know if that would get the job if I pull that shit. You know what I, I mean? Wouldn't. Like you if, or me wouldn't. I mean, maybe somebody wouldn't, but I'm not that guy. So, so as a side note, Brett Kavanaugh is Travis Bickle trying to get a job at driving a cab, right? Because he's like, "Are you gonna bust my shoes? You know what I mean? Are you? I, 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 I I'm gonna cry and say that I like beer and still get the job. You know, <laughs> just as an aside, but." The other thing, too, is that when Travis goes to save 
these girls, he's going by himself. Right. He devises this plan by himself. He goes by himself. He carries this whole thing out on his own. You know, that's what Schrader was talking about with God's lonely man. You know, um, and, and there's a there's an element of this that I carried over when I was doing Machetero, where you know, in my in my first feature Machetero with Pedro Taino, I'm talking about how he's this lonely character who's doing what he needs to do. You know, uh, there's an element of that, you know? And so, but with this film, it has to be totally different. It has to be a group effort. It has to be a communal effort. It has to be a collective effort, you know? Uh, and that's, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to, I'm trying to juggle a, a, a few of those different ideas where people have to make their own choices they each have to be God's only man, and then they have to do it in a collective, you know? And they have to do it knowing that eminent failure is, is right around the corner. Right there. It's a constant presence. Right. It's another character. Yeah. You know, it's it's constant. Like, we're going to do the impossible. And I think the thing is that, like, whenever people decide that they're going to do the impossible and they know that it's a suicide mission and they go into it, there's a certain amount of tragedy, but there's also a certain, a certain amount of freedom, but there's also a certain amount of triumphal, triumphal, triumphantness in it, in that you're going to do this thing regardless, regardless of the outcome. Right. And that's what I'm saying. That's, that's where your agency is kind of most present, right? Like you're not thinking about the choices you're making. You've decided to do something. Like you were saying before about the ter determinism, right? Whether things are predetermined or not. You're setting the parameters for what you can and can't do by saying, I must do this. Right. And once you said, I must do it, the outcome becomes a binary choice, right? It's, it's, it's deterministic in that way that it's either going to succeed or it's not. Or it's going to fail. Right. And from the perspective of somebody looking at the whole thing, how all that went down, I don't know if it looks predetermined, but it has a more limited set of paths. Right. Um, so, but but the idea, right, that it ends in tragedy, the paradox there is that the characters were fully aware and went into it knowing that this could end badly. And to me, that's where it ceases to be a tragedy. You know, that, there's the paradox. It ceases to be a tragedy because they went and did the impossible. They went and did the thing that they thought was going or to make a difference. Or even if they attempt to do the impossible. Right. Like the, the attempt at the impossible is kind of more important than the success. The willingness to do that right. collectively on behalf of other human beings, you know, other people who you care about. Even if you don't know them, right? right? But the thing, too, is that I, I want that to be an example. When you walk out of the theater, you're like, well, you know, I think that I think that we live in an age now 
maybe not so different, but maybe maybe it's a different thing where people don't want to struggle for something unless they know they're going to get it. They're going to win. And what I'm I don't, I, I don't think that's true. I mean, look at this past week. Do you think those lawmakers in Queens thought Amazon was going to leave? I don't I think they rolled the dice on that one. And it came up roses for them. They rolled double sixes. But right. that was not that was not a guaranteed, right? They may have had yeah, to go to court. Wanna, I don't I don't all yeah, of but, that. yeah, but I don't want to talk about I don't want to um I don't want to talk about Amazon and the pol- and the politicians from their point of view. What I'm saying to you is that like what's more important to me, what's more of a parallel in that situation is the community organizers who are like fuck no Amazon. You can't come over here and just run roughshod over us. That's yeah. not going to happen. Now, to the me, the unions who yeah, but, had pointed questions for them and were like, hey. Yeah, but what I'm saying to you is that those are the people, right, who were like. Who ran into the burning building. No. Yes. And they said, this is going to end badly for us. This is not going to end well. They're going to come here anyway, but we've got to put up resistance. They're going to come here anyway, and our chances of not, of forcing them to not come. Or to forcing them to come on our terms are Slip impossible, to none. right? But they did it anyway. They resisted anyway. They didn't have a choice. They resisted anyway, and that's my point. My point is that when people walk out of the theater, I want them to say, "It's not about whether or not we succeed. It's the it's about whether or not we resisted. It's about whether or not we came together in our universal struggle." Collectively. Collectively. That's what it's about. 